I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 6. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible under the row of chairs uh, in front of you. Uh, you'll want to have a Bible open because we're going to be making our way word by word, verse by verse, through a uh, difficult passage of Scripture. So if you can uh, grab a Bible, uh, we're going to be looking at Genesis 6. Verses 1 to 8 for our time together this morning. <clears throat> Follow along with me as I read for us Genesis 6, beginning in verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. <clears throat> uh, this passage of scripture is uh, one of the, uh, the most complicated, most confusing, most debated passages in the book of Genesis. And yet... When we take a step back and see the passage within its context, I believe we are able to actually see more clearly and understand more than we think we can. Uh, and so by way of context, we are in the uh, Toledoth or generation of Adam. These, one of these uh, 10 sections in the book of Genesis. Uh, in Genesis chapter 5, uh, we saw the faithfulness of God in providing offspring for the, the godly line of, of Seth and, and how they were blessed with really long lives. But then we also saw the sting of death in the refrain, Adam lived and he died. Seth lived and he died. Enosh lived and he died. And so on throughout all the descendants of Adam, except for Enoch, who points us to the hope of eternal life in Christ Jesus. And this brings us to our text this morning. Verse 1 says that man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. And so we see that mankind is being fruitful and they're multiplying and they're filling the earth and subduing it and having dominion just as God had 
commanded them to do back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And so uh, it looks like there's a lot of good happening on the earth. It looks like God is blessing mankind just as he said that he would also back in Genesis 1, verse 28. But as mankind multiplies, and this is the theme for this particular passage, as mankind multiplies, so does evil. As mankind multiplies, so does evil. Verse 2 says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. So the big question is, how are we to understand these sons of God? Who were they and where did they come from? You can read multiple commentaries on this passage and you will find multiple interpretations. But uh, there, there are really three main ways of interpreting the sons of God here in verse 2. Now, the first interpretation is that the sons of God are earthly kings. So the first interpretation is that the sons of God are earthly kings. Uh, In the Old Testament, a ruler, a judge, a king uh, was sometimes called a son of God. We we see this in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, where David is told that one of his children would be God's son. Uh, And in Psalm 2, verse 7, the Lord says, To the king of Israel, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So it's it's not not uncommon for kings to be described in this way. Uh, According to this interpretation, then, the, the sin here is that these earthly kings took multiple wives for themselves. Any they chose. And, and that they promoted tyranny and violence and corruption, as is evidenced in verse 4, where their offspring are described as the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And so like Lamech, they, they had a disdain for marriage and a disdain for life. However, the problem with this interpretation is that even though Adam acted as a type of king in the Garden of Eden, uh, there has really been no mention of earthly kings up until this point in Genesis. So it would be unusual to introduce kings all of a sudden here in in Genesis chapter 6 and in such an obscure way. Because we'll clearly see uh, kings uh, later on in Genesis and, and later on in the Old Testament. So that's the first interpretation, and I'm not not partial to that one. The second interpretation is that the sons of God are angels. They're angels. They're some kind of supernatural beings. So this is the language used in in Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. It's also in uh, Job chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Uh, One commentator writes, the two phrases, the sons of God and the daughters of man, seem to be in contrast with one another. 
so that the daughters of man are human and the sons of God are not human. According to uh, this interpretation, uh, angelic beings took for themselves human wives. Thus, the sin here is the disregard for the ordinance of marriage, which God had established for human beings. And there's, there's a reason why uh, commentators will uh, go with this particular interpretation. They, they draw a connection between this passage uh, and passages like uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, which alludes to Christ preaching upon his death to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And then also uh, Jude verse 6, which refers to the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. And then also 2 Peter uh, chapter 2 verse 4, which says that uh, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Right, so, so many of the uh, earliest interpreters understood this to be a reference to angels. Uh, many of the church fathers, as well as the uh, intertestamental Jewish book, uh, First Enoch. I don't know if when the last time was that you read First Enoch, uh, but it, they understood it this way. Uh, however, there are significant problems with this angel interpretation as well. Uh, one being in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, and, and also in Mark and also in Luke, um, Jesus mentions that angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. Right, so, so though angels can take human form, and, and we'll see that later on in the book of Genesis, in, in Genesis chapter 18, though angels can take human form, there is no indication in scripture that angels can uh, have sex and procreate with human beings. We, we just don't have an answer for that. They, they might, but we, we just don't know. But the most significant problem with the angel interpretation is that the punishment of the flood only affects human beings and not angels. Uh, there's no record of angels being swept up in the flood. It's a, it's a punishment specifically on human beings. So if the sons of God in verse 2 are angels, then why are human beings the one who are being punished? And so that's, those are the, the problems with the second interpretation. And this brings us to the third interpretation, and that is that the sons of God is a reference to the godly line of Seth. The sons of God is a reference to the godly line of Seth. Uh, in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 to 23, the Lord tells Moses to say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Also, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, the Lord says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And then when you get to the New Testament, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, 
says that in Christ, you're all sons of God through faith. And and so we see uh, that scripture often refers to uh, the people of God as sons of God. And when you consider the context, because remember, we're we're taking a step back and we're, we're looking at this passage within its context. And so when you consider the context of this passage, how uh, we have seen a clear distinction between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the servant in Genesis chapter 3, right? And we've seen uh, the godly line of Seth in Genesis chapter 4 and the ungodly line of Cain in Genesis chapter, or sorry, the godly line of Seth in Genesis chapter 5 and the ungodly line of Cain in Genesis chapter 4, then it makes sense that the sons of God here would be a reference to the godly line of Seth. Thus, the sin here, because the, the, the flood is a, is a punishment for, for sin and wickedness, the sin here is that the sons of God, the uh, descendants of Adam through the godly line of Seth, were taking any of the wives they chose. Right? So in other words, they weren't marrying uh, within their own people. They weren't marrying uh, those who uh, shared the same faith. Instead, they were marrying women from the ungodly line of Cain who were attractive. Right now, now just to clarify, there's nothing wrong with marrying an attractive woman. I married an attractive woman. But notice how it says that they saw the daughters of man. They saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And the Hebrew word here for saw here is the same Hebrew word in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, where it says that the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that it was to to be desired to make one wise. So just as Eve saw and took the fruit of the tree of which God had commanded them not to eat, so also the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took for themselves wives any as they chose. And so here in this replay of the fall, because that's, that's what we're meant to see here is that it's a, it's a replay of the fall. The object of lust is not fruit, but the bodies of beautiful women that the sons of God saw and took for themselves. And we see this pattern of seeing and taking throughout the Old Testament. Uh, in Genesis chapter 12, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was very beautiful and she is taken into Pharaoh's house. Um, in Genesis 34, Shechem saw Dinah and took her and raped her. In Judges 14, Samson saw a Philistine woman and ordered his parents to go and get her for him as his wife. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, King David saw a woman bathing from the roof of his house and he took her and he lay with her. And so I, I believe that, that what we're meant to see here is that there is no longer a distinction between the godly and ungodly lines. But rather, the, the lines have been blurred. The, the godly line of Seth is now acting like the ungodly line of Cain in seeing these attractive women and then taking whichever ones they want. And at the end of Genesis chapter 4, we saw 
uh, how people began to call upon the name of the Lord at that time. And we saw how the, the line of Seth was known for the worship of the one true God. But suddenly, suddenly these sons of God are no longer interested in the worship of Yahweh. They would rather satisfy their lustful desires. And, and what's an enormous tragedy about this, as if that's not you know, bad enough, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promised that there would be enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, and yet now we see them intermarrying. So there once was a distinction, and now there is no longer a distinction. And as a result, the Lord says in verse 3, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. All right, so this is a, this is a reference to the, the shortening of mankind's lifespan. In contrast to the, the nearly 1,000 years that mankind had been living, you remember Methuselah, 969 years? Well, God is going to limit their lifespan to 120 now, now, this might seem initially problematic when you consider that uh, Noah and many of his descendants uh, lived for hundreds of years. Uh, Abraham lived to be 175. Isaac lived to be 180. Jacob lived to be 147. Right? But over time, the lifespans of mankind declined. Right? Joseph lived to be 110. Moses lived to be 120. Joshua lived to be 110. So make no mistake, God would be true to his word. And that's also another thing that we're going to see here, is that God is true to his word. Now, now you might be wondering how intermarrying with, with unbelievers could possibly be enough to bring about punishment and judgment but when you look at the first five books of the Bible, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and, and Deuteronomy, when you, when you look at the first five books of the Bible, there are numerous warnings given by Moses against what? Against intermarrying, against intermarriage uh, of believers and, and unbelievers. We, we see this in, in Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 to 4, where it says, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking uh, their daughters for your sons. Why? For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Right? We have a perfect illustration of this in King Solomon, don't we? Right? In 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1, it says that King Solomon loved many foreign women. Right? That's already a recipe for disaster. But, but then we read that these women were from nations that God had commanded the people of Israel to not enter into marriage with. Because, the text says, they will turn away your heart after other gods. Yet what does Solomon do? He takes these women as his wives. And what is the result? His wives turned away his heart after other gods, so that his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. And later God says to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your 
servant. And, and what happens? Exactly that. We see that God is true to his word because God is serious about his people being wholly devoted to him. And so we're, we're meant to see here that, that man's rebellion against God never goes unnoticed. That's not like we can just shove it under the rug. No, it never goes unnoticed. It doesn't matter how great and how mighty you think you are. Look at verse 4. It says that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, uh, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Uh, so the, the Hebrew word here for uh, Nephilim is Nephilim. Right? In other words, translators didn't know how to bring this word into to English, and so they just left it as Nephilim, which is probably, probably good. Uh, it comes from the, the Hebrew root word, uh, nepel, uh, which means to fall. And so this has led uh, many commentators to suggest that the Nephilim is a reference to the fallen ones. In other words, a, a kind of a race of fallen warriors or, or fallen soldiers. That's why they're called men of renown. But it's important to note here that the Nephilim are not the same as the sons of God in verse 2. Nor are they the offspring that were born to the sons of God and the daughters of man in verse 4. Because the text says that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. All right, So we, we see that the Nephilim were already in existence. Why does that matter? Well, it, it matters because we're not dealing with pagan mythology uh, where gods are having sexual relations with human women and producing these kinds of demigods called the Nephilim. But that's not what we're dealing with here. This isn't, this isn't Hercules and Zeus. This is real history and it's, and it's biblical history. So though, though we don't know much about the Nephilim, we, we do know that they are the same as the mighty men at the end of, of verse 4, the, the men of renown. Uh, some, some of your translations might have uh, giants there uh, instead of Nephilim. And, and that's because the only other reference to the Nephilim is in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, where it's used twice in one verse. And it's in reference to the, the Israelite spies who, who go into the land of Canaan and 10 of them come back with a bad report. You all remember the, the story? Well, they're, they're clearly exaggerating because they're scared, but, but they say to the people, we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Now, obviously, they, they don't actually see the descendants of the Nephilim, because the Nephilim would, would eventually be wiped out in the flood. But what they saw were these giants, these, these mighty men, these men of renown who resembled the Nephilim, and thus they had a category in their minds for how to look at these individuals. 
They may have looked impressive, but God is not impressed. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Uh, We need to ask ourselves, are we that bad? Are we that bad? Here here in Genesis chapter 6, we, we see the, the total depravity of, of mankind. We see how far mankind has plummeted from their privileged position. We, we see how they are not only satisfying the desires of the flesh and in, in seeing and taking what they want, but the very core of their being craved wickedness. Every intention, only evil, continually. You'd you'd be hard-pressed to describe the sinful state of mankind in stronger language. But the question is, are we that bad? Are we that bad? Uh, Here's how the Apostle Paul describes the state of the natural man. In Romans 3, verses 10 to 18. Paul writes, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so what we're seeing here is that left to ourselves, apart from God's redeeming grace, apart from Christ apart from the the awakening of the Holy Spirit, this is the indictment of the human race, just naturally. And so the answer is yes. Yes, by nature, we are that bad. We we have gone from, from Genesis 1, verse 31, where it says that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, to Genesis 6, verse 5, where it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man is great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. No wonder verse 6 says that the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. This is not the way it was supposed to be. As such, God says in verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. In Exodus 32, verses 9 to 10, 
after the people of Israel made the golden calf and started worshiping it as Moses is up, up on the mountain. But the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But then after Moses' intercession for on behalf of the people, in Exodus 32, verse 14, it says that the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. And so what, what, do we, what do we do with this language? Well, what do we do with passages of scripture that speak of God regretting and grieving and relenting? Did, did God make a mistake? Did God suddenly change his mind? Oops, plan B. <laughs> of course not. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that God is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. That is our God. God is immutable, which means he does not change. Malachi uh, 3, verse 6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. And God is impassable, which means he is without passions. That's not to say that God isn't passionate, but that he's not controlled by emotions the same way we are. 1 Samuel 15, verse 29 says that God is not a man that he should have regret. And so whenever we, we come across passages of scripture like these that, that speak of God grieving or regretting, we should always read them through the lens that God doesn't grieve or regret like we do. The Bible is using this provocative language to describe God's horror and God's anger over sin. God's not some disinterested observer in the human scene. His heart is filled with pain. Pain over our sin, pain over our wickedness. One pastor said that the most problematic fact about our sin is not that it destroys us, which it does, and it's not that it harms other people, which it does. But the fact that it grieves God. It pains God. And this, is, this is why David prays to God in, in Psalm 51 verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and, and, and done evil in your sight. Right? David isn't saying that he didn't sin against Uriah and against Bathsheba. David is saying that what is most grievous about his situation is the fact that he sinned against the Lord. And it is only when we realize that we have sinned against the Lord that we will 
realize the grievous nature of our sin. The heinousness of our sin. Our sin is so grievous to the Lord that he says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Again, we need to ask ourselves a question. Is God that mad? Right? Yes, we are that bad, but does God have a right to be that mad against human sin? And the answer again is yes. You know, we might think we would prefer a God in whom there is no wrath. But if he were not angered by sin and evil, if he was unaffected and unmoved by the presence of wickedness in our world, he would cease to be God. That's not God at all. Our God does something about the sin and the wickedness in the world. But the reality is that that God made us in his image. He gave us everything we need to enjoy life in him, yet we rebelled against him. We committed cosmic treason against the king of the universe, if you can imagine So yes, God has a right to be that mad. And it is this understanding. It is this understanding that we have sinned against an infinitely holy God. And that God is entirely just to judge us on account of our sin. That will help us to understand the flood and ultimately the cross. Because if we don't believe that we are as bad as Genesis 6 and and, and Romans 3 say that we are, and, and if we don't believe that God has a right to be that mad against human sin, then the flood won't make sense to us, and the cross surely won't make sense to us. The flood is a picture of the judgment of God at the cross, where Jesus took the punishment for sin we deserved. And where the floodwaters of God's wrath washed over Jesus so that by faith in Jesus Christ, it's not we who are blotted out, but rather it's our sin that is blotted out. In in Isaiah 43, verse 25, the Lord says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. El would drew our attention to that this morning in the remembrance service. What, what did you say? Uh, the, the God who remembers everything remembers not our sin. Beautiful. Right, this is why David prays in, in Psalm 51, verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. And again in Psalm 51, verse 9, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And we see at the cross, Jesus made a way for our sins to be blotted out fully, finally, and forever so that, so that we could dwell with him not for 120 years, but for eternity. As Revelation 21 verse 3 says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and we will reign with God on the earth forever and ever. That is the good news that comes out of this passage. 
This brings us to, to verse 8. In, in Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul writes that, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins and, and that we were sons of disobedience. And, and, and he gives us all of this, all this bad news. And then he turns and says, but God. Two of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. But God. And then he gives us the really good news. Right? We see the same thing going on here in verse 8. After hearing all the bad news, we read about some really good news. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. All right, now this verse isn't actually about Noah, it's about God. Even though verse 9 says that Noah walked with God, he was still a sinner like the rest. And, and were it not for the grace of God, he too would have perished like the rest. Uh, in fact, in, in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, Noah is going to plant a, a vineyard and he's going to get drunk on the wine and he's going to lie in his tent naked and his son Ham is going to walk in and, and see his, his nakedness. So, so even Noah deserves punishment for sin like the rest of mankind. Yet, yet, we read that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. All right, so what we see is that in the midst of all of the wickedness on the earth, in the midst of the sons of God sinning and taking the daughters of man, in the midst of all the violence committed by these mighty men, these men of renown, in the midst of God's punishment of shortening man's lifespan, there was hope. Noah found favor. <laughs> There's, there is one with whom God was not angry. And of course, Noah is pointing forward to, to the one with whom God was well pleased, his beloved son, Jesus Christ, through whom we too can find favor with God. And, and the, the question for us is, have you found favor with God? Have you found favor with God. I'm not talking about whether you've done enough good things in your life to outweigh the, the bad things. Oh, that's, Noah didn't find favor in the eyes of the Lord because of who he was and what he did. Well, he found favor in the eyes of the Lord because of who God is and because of what God did. Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 9 makes it very clear that by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. Is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so the question is, have you found favor with God? Are you the recipient of his amazing grace? Do, do you know that you do not have to be among those with whom God is angry? At a day of Destruction and judgment is coming, the apostle Peter warns in, in 2 Peter chapter 3. When the earth will go through fire, not water. But there is a way to be saved from the flood of God's judgment, and it's through the ark of Jesus Christ. Have you found such favor? With God, Have you found favor with God through our Lord Jesus Christ? 
If you are not sure, you can talk to myself, one of the elders, Elwood Fred. We'd be more than happy to talk with you about that. God will be true to his word. God will be true to his word. The wrath of God will be perfectly carried out against all ungodliness, either through judgment on the cross for all who believe or through the judgment of sinners in hell. But either way, it will be carried out. God will be true to his word. And our only hope is in God's great grace. Our only hope is in God's great grace. May each one of us know his grace today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace, your favor. You know we don't deserve it. But according to your goodness and loving kindness towards us in Christ, you saw fit to bestow your grace upon us, for which we give you all praise and thanks. We ask that you would impress the seriousness of this passage upon our hearts and our minds. And for those who don't know Christ, we ask that you would lead them to faith and repentance. That they might escape the wrath to come and be set free from sin and misery before it is too late. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.